1: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at Let It Roll Cast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, author Mark Blake returns to talk with Nate about his book, Comfortably Numb, the inside story of Pink Floyd. In this episode, Mark describes the struggle for power and battles with madness that propelled Pink Floyd from the psychedelic era to rock stardom as the kings of progressive rock. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Enjoy.
0: Time to let it roll, and this week we're joined once again by author Mark Blake here to talk about "Comfortably Numb," the inside story of Pink Floyd. Mark, welcome.
2: Thank you. Good to good to be here again.
0: Cool. It's it's uh, should be a fun one. Pink Floyd is a classic tale of the evolution of rock and roll through from the psychedelic '60s all the way to the corporate '80s. So I'm glad you can join us to tell this tale. Tell us a little bit about how Pink Floyd started, the genesis of these middle-class boys in Cambridge.
2: Yeah, well, Cambridge is, as they say in Spinal Tap, it's a big college town. Um, it has one of the most famous universities so in the world, and that sort of casts quite a big shadow over Cambridge. So it's, it's a uni- big university town in East Anglia, and Roger Waters, Sid Barrett, and David Gilmour all grew up in there. Their parents were all academics, not necessarily involved with the university, but the teachers are involved in academia. And that was the sort of, if you like, the crucible for, for Pink for what became Pink Floyd. And Roger Waters and Sid Barrett made the move to London to study. They were the, they were the first ones to go and uh, that's when they put pink floyd together but cambridge is very much at the root of uh, of pink floyd of the it's certainly the original sound and I, I still think a lot of the sound of pink floyd and a lot of the influences right through the roger waters era it, 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 a lot of it still comes back to cambridge
0: and roger and sid barrett moved to london and Roger starts going to school at the London Polytechnic studying architecture, and that's where the other two members of the original Pink Floyd lineup come in. That's
2: where he met Nick Mason and, and Rick Wright. Yeah, Roger Waters was older, so he was def- he was down there first. Um, yeah, to study to study architecture. I mean, he did work in an architect's office for a little while, but while he was there, he met he met Nick Mason. Rick Wright, Rick Wright's the woman that later became Rick Wright's first wife, she sang with them for a bit. I mean, it was a college band. You know, they were just there was a couple of other guitar players, and it was just for fun. They'd play college balls, private parties, that kind of thing. And it was a little later, a year or two down the line, when, when Sid Barrett moved to London, and he, he hooked up with them as well.
0: And would you say it's fair to describe Pink Floyd as more middle class than the wave of bands that preceded them, groups like The Kinks or The Who?
2: Yeah, possibly. I think so. You could, in a way, I think we you get a little too hung up on the class kind of thing. I mean, in the case of the who you had, Roger Daltrey would tell you that he was staunchly working class and was, you know, working as, a, as an apprentice steelworker, while Pete Townsend was the son of two musicians was working, was was going to an art school. So it's a mix. It's very much a mix. But yeah, their parents were, were all were academics, apart from Nick Mason's, who well, I don't know actually know what Rick Wright's mum and dad, or what his father did. Rick Wright is a mystery of Pink Floyd. He was even, you know, no matter how much you research, you can finally find out a little bit about him. Nick Mason's dad was a, a filmmaker. Um, so yeah, they and, and was quite comfortably off. So yes, and the, and the others, like I say, they're, they're the offspring of teachers. They They were brought up in quite a... A literate environment, I think it'd be fair to say. Lots of books and music and art and influences. All of that stuff you can hear in the music.
0: And they start out as, I mean, they're definitely a second-wave British band. They start out as fans of the Beatles and the Stones and the Who rather than, I mean, they were into Bo Diddley and, and the blues to some extent, but they weren't coming from the source, as it were, in terms of American rhythm and blues music. And then their timing is perfect. I mean, that's one of the fascinating things about Pink Floyd is, they were always on the crest of a wave and the first wave they caught is the psychedelic underground and it's not even an explosion yet it's just an underground in london
2: yeah that's right there was a club in london called ufo which was a club night it was held in the basement underneath a cinema i mean during the week it had regular show bands playing you know mainstream entertainment and on Friday nights, they let it out to a group of people that were putting together a kind of free newspaper that was going to talk about art and music and drugs and, you know, for, as you said, an underground thing, a kind of beatnik, what we would call, what you would call beatnik, I guess, in the United States. It was an, It was an element of that. Uh, Pink Floyd, I mean, you mentioned earlier, didn't really come from the blues, a lot of that influence was sort of in there, but they weren't very good as musicians, you know, they weren't conventionally great musicians, certainly not when they started, and that changed when David Gilmore joined, so I think that the sound that they started to make, you know, dovetails with what's going on in the underground scene, With you mentioned psychedelia, it's a happy accident. A lot of this, they weren't that great at play Sid Barrett wasn't that great at playing conventional guitar solos like Jimi Hendrix or at Clapton. So he started making strange noises, you know, and that that sort of got them identified as a bit avant-garde and a bit left-field. And that sort of appealed to people at this club, you know, which is where they sort of where they played a few times. They didn't play there that, that often, in fact, but those shows were were very important to them.
0: And Sid brought a certain element of conventional charisma. I mean, you've got some quotes from people that grew up with uh, Barrett and Waters and Gilmore in Cambridge. And one of the quotes that I just thought was great was uh, a a girl who knew them described Sid and David Gilmore as being like the Sting character in Quadrophenia. And if you've seen that movie, the, the Sting character is the king of the mods. I mean, he's this beautiful young man. He's flashily dressed. He's on the cool Vespa. So... I think that, you know, sometimes we get this narrative in rock and roll of these nerds that go into the chrysalis and come out as these rock star butterflies, but these guys were charismatic from the get-go, at least Sid and David yeah, Gilmore, definitely,
2: definitely. I mean, with Sid Barrett as well, I mean, it, it, the interesting thing is that even when he was about 17 or 18, he was hanging out with people that were two or three years older than him, which is quite unusual at that age. And the reason being that people were drawn to him. He was very, like you say, he was a good-looking, charismatic guy, very artistic, clearly very talented. He had some kind of talent. Um, which people weren't entirely sure whether he was going to become a musician or an artist. If you talk to members of his family, a lot of people, they they, they had him down as an artist far more than ever becoming a pop musician. But he was into whatever was new and what was different. And he was forward thinking and he, he marched to the beat of his own drum, if you like. He was an unusual guy. And when I spoke to his uh, some of his ex-girlfriends, they all said the same thing. Said he wasn't part of the crowd. He tended to do his own thing, and I think that made him very attractive to, you know, other like-minded souls. You know, even if they were a little bit older. Everybody who congregated at Sid Barrett's house and made him very attractive to women as well, including some that were older than him. They they made a fuss of him. He's just he's that guy that lights up the room. You know, which obviously makes what happened to him later all, all the more tragic. But yeah, he was a very important part of this because he was the he was the good looking pop starry guy you could stick at the front that would that would sell it.
0: And you've got somebody uh, in the early days that describes the band as Sid Barrett and the other three blokes. I mean, he completely overshadowed them in the in the UFO era.
2: Well, he did. Yeah, I mean, in, that's in terms of. That's how people remember them at the at the time. That was coming from quotes from other other w- eyewitnesses at the time. I think that may have come from one of the managers. They certainly saw him as a talent. People had underestimated Roger Waters. Roger Waters at this time, but then Roger Waters wasn't really writing songs to start with. He, he, he was you know still trying to play the bass, but he was very much he was the organisation. That that is one thing to say. It was the three other blokes it's a good quote and i can't remember who told me that but i liked it at the time but i think behind the scenes i think even early on roger waters was very good at being organized and making things happen but yeah from from the public's point of view it's sid and three other guys
0: and let's let's hear a little bit of the early pink floyd this is astronomy domain live 1967 was sid barrett's pink floyd doing astronomy domain live in 1967 that's the song that kicked off their first album and got them the label space rockers which roger waters really came to hate
1: yes
2: yeah it did yeah i mean they will make again they're making it up as they, they kind of went along at the time i think that the the, the plan was in terms of that first album the Piper at the gates of dawn was to take an element of what they were doing at ufo these kind of experimental free form twenty minute jams and kind of chopping it down and making it a little bit more accessible to a, to a broader audience and uh, you know that's 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 pretty much what they were there to do but that that kind of space rock tag you know they invited it themselves songs called astronomy and you know and so on so they they, they didn't shy away from it because that was a kind of hip influence at the time so uh, they've only got themselves to blame I think ultimately.
0: Yeah, and there's three characters I want to introduce at this point before we get too far into it. Uh, two of them are Andrew King and Peter Jenner, who were the first managers of Pink Floyd. Tell also a little bit about these guys and, and, and how they played into the
2: picture. Well, they were just sort of – I think Jenner had been to Cambridge University, in fact. Um, I'm not sure about Andrew King, but they were both the sons of Vickers, and they were both very well-educated, liberal, left-wing – Middle class boys, you know, who came to London, were fascinated by the blues and jazz and the kind of what underground alternative culture, whatever you want to call it. And they were around at UFO and around at a lot of the places that the early Pink Floyd were playing. And in certainly in the case of Peter Jenner. You know, he saw something there that was different from a conventional pop group. He didn't, he, he said, I like the fact that Sid Barrett didn't play guitar solos like Eric Clapton. So the more left field side of Pink Floyd appealed to him. And the two of them said, Well, we'll manage it. But they didn't know how to manage a band. They'd never managed anything before. Again, they weren't, I don't think they were significantly older than the group. Or had any experience whatsoever, but you know, in the absence of anything else, people went, "Yeah, of course, I'll, I'll sign you." Both Jenner and King went on to long and illustrious careers in music management and publishing and so on. But it was it, they were starting out just the same, just the same as the band were. Um, they just believed in them. They were the first people to go, "Yes, we think you're good, and well, let's let's see what we can do." And They got them, they got them signed to EMI, so that is, you know, that that was a, a huge uh, feather in their caps.
0: And before they got him signed with EMI, they hooked him up with a guy named Joe Boyd, who produced the Arnold Blaine single in the early demos.
2: That's right. Well, Joe Boyd was an American living in London who, was again, was very involved in UFO. And again, he was somebody that was very organized. He was a mover and a shaker. He was someone that, we could, that could get things done. It wasn't just about sitting around smoking a joint or dropping acid and, well, oh, maybe this will happen, maybe it's won't happen. I mean, he made things happen and he helped make UFO happen. And he was very ambitious, again, another, another man who went on to produce R.E.M. and, and his incredible string band, Nick Drake, all sorts of bands, you know, and, and have an illustrious career. And this was a start for him as well. I think what it was is he, he wanted to be, he produced Arnold Lane. Um, I think Pink Floyd would have been happy for him to have produced the first album, but EMI had a thing of using their own producers, which is how they ended up using Norman Smith. And Joe Boyd kind of got rode out of the Pink Floyd story quite very well, very early on. But, you know, I think he was he was essential to what they did. You know, again, he helped get them signed, and he, he, he helped produce their first single, which was a hit.
0: Uh, it made top 20 in the British charts, and almost got him on top of the pops. But <clears throat> Boyd's one of the first figures that they work with who feels that he's been disposed of somewhat unfairly, and that thing will rise again and we'll come back to that but let's talk about norman smith a little bit who was a house producer at emi and his main claim to fame up to this point as he had, he had been the engineer for george martin on the beatles sessions from please please me up through rubber soul
2: yeah that's right Normal, Well, norman again was significantly older than, than the band unlike say joe boyd or jenner and king he was a different generation and he was a company man and the, and I mean, I, I interviewed, I think I did the last ever interview Norman did, because he, he passed away not long after I'd interviewed him or done or the book had come out. And you know, again, he was working for EMI was like the BBC here in the UK. It was a corporate environment. Engineers, a lot of a lot of the the the, the engineers on the floor who fixed all the mixing desks and machines were required to wear sort of brown coats, as if they were working in a factory. You know, you couldn't come to work without a tie, for instance, if you were a producer. Norman Smith was like that. And Norman at the time. Uh, said to me he goes i had an absolutely no idea what pink floyd's music was about i didn't understand it He went to see them at ufo didn't understand it at all thought "I, i don't know what this is but this is fashionable it's hip and i think we can probably make some money and i think he relied a little bit on a couple of his engineers who were a bit younger and a bit more clued up and that's not to take anything away from norman but what he did with that Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and we'd, particularly with would see Emily play, the second single, was take elements of what Pink Floyd did and mold it and make it more accessible so these were songs that could get played on the radio and that wouldn't, or that wouldn't send you sort of screaming if you were in the middle of a bad acid trip or something. So he, he was there to commercialize that sound, and I think he did a very, very good job on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, he produced a, a hit single and, and a masterpiece of a mm-hmm. debut album. And C. Emily Play goes to number three, gets him on top of the pops. But this is around the time when Sid Barrett
2: snaps. Yeah, I mean, I think the snapping was a slow, a slow snapping, perhaps. Um, this is a very, very misinterpreted period. In because there's this, there's this popular idea that he took too much acid and went mad and he didn't. And a few years ago, a long time after this book came out, I interviewed his sister for she was talking about him, very rare interview. She was talking in in honour in, in of a mental health charity, and we sat and talked about her brother. And you walked, away, I walked away from that conversation, convinced what I had suspected all along is that he was just somebody who his personality and the way he was wasn't suited to to to, to being in a pop group and to going on TV and radio and repeating yourself and saying the same thing and performing the same song over and over again. That wasn't what he was about. And from the outside, you go, what the hell's the matter with you? You're going to be a pop star. But if your brain isn't wired up like that, and I don't think his was... Then, then it becomes problematic. And during those top of the pops appearances, he's just disappeared. He was supposed to be on top of the pops, and he disappeared. Went round, I think, a dealer's house. They had to, the management. I think Jenna came round, and they had to sort of drag him out. And it was like, you know, what? What the hell are you doing? You're screwing up our chances here. And I can completely understand that. But having sat and s- sat with your sister and talked, I understand where he was coming from. But so, yeah, he started to he started to freak out. He became unreliable on stage. He wasn't turning up. A lot of this was blamed on LSD or blamed on dope, both of which played a part in it. But I suspect, though, there was a deeper problem that may have been there and probably was there even from childhood. And that copious amounts of dope and acid just brought it out, made it worse.
0: Yeah, he's one of several figures who was probably schizophrenic or latently schizophrenic, like Rocky Erickson or Skip Spence and Moby Grape. In,
2: In this day and age, he would have been diagnosed and as you know as i keep coming back to his sister but i think she's really important in this because whatever you and i say or even the other members of the band it doesn't mean shit compared to what she thinks and she knew him from childhood and looked after him right to the very end and she's again said she thought that it may have been an undiagnosed mental condition so yeah that you know that's definitely the thing
0: and so at this point the band does this amazing transformation i mean very few bands that rocket to the top of the pops or to number three on the top of the pops that are one charismatic talented guy who's the lead singer writes all the songs or almost all the songs plays lead guitar suddenly snaps doesn't cooperate with the program will get on live tv and not perform uh will stand stock still at gigs you know tries to write songs for them and and those roger waters story of of the song sid brought called have you got it yet which as soon as the band would follow along with the chords he was playing he would change them and sing have you got it yet and eventually roger waters figures out it's a prank that he's he's just messing with them and and that there's no chance of even having him in a brian wilson role of the band where you know brian wilson had mental troubles with the beach boys stopped touring but functioned as a producer and songwriter in the studio and Sid wasn't even able to do that even though he still had at least two albums worth of songs in him and and yet Pink Floyd soldiers on they bring in Sid and Roger's childhood friend David Gilmore who's almost the opposite of Sid and that he's this prodigious musical talent who can imitate Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton but he's not an A brilliant idea man or concept guy like Sid and so for several years the band soldiers on surprisingly successfully I mean what was it about this era that a band really with no songwriter for six albums could could succeed so well
2: Well I think it's down to Roger Waters and and David Gilmore two polar opposites but Roger Waters really didn't want to become an architect and decided I'm not going to let you know Sid Barrett's disappearance stopped me from trying to pursue this music career they had a deal with EMI in those days you were indulged by record companies far more than you were now and as you said the the albums they made after that Source of the Secrets, Amagama, Atom Heart Mother these records were huge sellers they actually sold a lot of copies with what is very uncompromising music but I think that whole period is a period of them trying to work out what they were going to be now that Sid Barrett had left and um, like you say it's it, it, on the one hand it's it lacks some of it lacks direction, some of it's a lot of fooling around in the studio but that you know it worked at the time and I think there's some great moments. On those albums rather than saying that they're, they're great albums. But it, the, the, this is the period that Roger Waters emerges as a songwriter. He almost becomes a songwriter by willing himself into it. He just kept on going and going, and he was a good lyric writer, had good ideas. And then, of course, you've got Gilmore as well, who's a, a magical guitar player and singer, and was also starting to be encouraged to write. And of course, we haven't mentioned Rick Wright because Richard Wright, the keyboard player, really emerges during this period and, and you know, his personality is very very withdrawn compared to the rest of the band and he's very put upon and tended to be the butt of a lot of gentle piss taking and jokes but you know he was actually again another fantastic musician a great singer and, and had a, and, and brought an awful lot to the table as well so that's what happens during that during that period you know everybody else raises their game and it starts to fall into place
0: and let's hear a little bit of that. Uh, this is Adam Hart Mother live with a brass and choral section. And it's kind of hard to believe from the perspective of 2019, but in the late 60s and early 70s, bands playing with orchestras was all the rage. I mean, the Moody Blues are doing it. The Beatles obviously had done it. The Stones had even done it a little bit. Deep Purple does a whole album uh, with an orchestra. And Adam Hart Mother goes to number one on the charts.
2: Yeah. I mean, and, you know, it doesn't sound fantastic, does it? You know? <laughs> yeah. You're, well, very You're very brave playing the live version. <laughs> <But> <laughs> well, this honestly, is, yeah. This is but, the thing though. They just they were experimenting. You know, they were experimenting. Hey, let's try this. You know, they did a lot of film soundtrack work during this point as well. And I think that they at one point were looking and thinking, well, hey, if we don't have pop hits, maybe we can maybe we can become a kind of film soundtrack composer. So there's a lot of mucking around during this period, really. I, I think it's quite directionless, a lot of it.
0: And yet, um, you know, going back and listening to all these albums, which I hadn't listened to since I was a kid, I, I was like you say, there are definitely moments on each of the albums and and they never completely lost the plot. They were always doing an interesting jam or or rocking out in a way that like the American psychedelic bands weren't capable of. And. I think one thing that you bring out in the book is the audience was demanding experimentation at this point in time and at these massive festivals people were actually lying down and spacing out and enjoying the music as sort of chill out
2: music for acid yeah, trips. It's a completely different world from now. I think that's a really good point about to 2019. I mean, I, you know, it, people wanted something to be different. They didn't, you know, Pink Floyd took a decision. We want, we're not going to release singles anymore. They had a couple of, a couple of flop singles after Sid Barrett and it's like, when, hey, we're not going to do singles anymore. That's because their singles weren't selling. and They couldn't write hits. So they concentrated on doing something else. But there is a certain kind of snobbery, if you want, if that's not too strong a word. It's kind of like, hey, you know, I'm only into albums. You know, this is album music. This is serious music. This isn't, this isn't a three minute pop song. And I do think there was a certain element Element of snobbery within that kind of underground music scene at that time. And I, I've seen it in my own experience of, of, of music, and I think that probably had something to do with it. The idea is that you're listening to Pink Floyd, you're having a serious experience. Look at this album, it's got a cow on the cover, there isn't a picture of the band, they haven't even got their name. That stuff is mysterious and kind of quite intriguing. It's, but It certainly was to me as a teenager, to teenage men, teenage males kind of sitting in their bedroom with headphones on listening and thinking there's some deep, meaningful experience in this music. I think that's a very appealing, a big part of the appeal.
0: Yeah. And and the, I'm glad you brought up the album cover because that's something, you know, in the streaming era we've completely lost touch with, but in the sixties and seventies, an album was an artifact with this big 12 by 12 cover and, and it, you know you could put them on the walls you could leave them out by your record player and a visual and 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 Pink Floyd worked with the hypnosis uh, art team on almost all their album covers and that was a huge part of the package and, and something like Adam Hart mother where you've got this picture of a cow with boots on is so visually striking and, you know and they cover the dark side of the moon is also a classic I mean That was a huge factor, and they're in this context where FM radio is taking over, especially in the States, where there's these enormous rock festivals going on. So even a band like Pink Floyd that was fairly unknown in the States would find themselves playing stadiums. Yeah, they
2: they were. Yeah, obviously on a bill with kind of Frank Zappa or, or, you know, Jefferson Airplane or or whoever else was maybe around at that time. They used to go on with The Who a few times. Yeah, and they'd be playing this stuff at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) In you know, I don't know, you know, a state like you say, a state, a stadium in Washington or, or wherever, but but yeah, it, it, it yeah, I mean, the the, the impact of the album covers again is a huge part of this. It, it's all part of the package. It's part of that idea that you're getting something that's mysterious and you know, strange, and, mystique. And so was the
0: the multimedia show at their live shows, which they had started at the UFO club with you know early uh, slideshows and 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 blatter colored lights behind him and and by the early 70s you know like you've got descriptions of people who saw him at the time they're talking about how they can fill the air because their their amps had suddenly you know developed to the point where they could stadiums could be filled with rock music in the way that the Beatles just couldn't in 1965 by 69 70 71 a band like Pink Floyd with a bunch of Marshall stacks really could Fill up the sound of the stadium. Plus, they're doing film projections and these other things. So, as as, you know, in retrospect, it looks kind of out of focus, and, and some of these things have become sort of hippie cliches. But at the time, this is all new and innovative, and it's sort of like a talking dog. You know, it's not what the dog says, it's that the dog's talking. And at the time, a rock band, just qua rock band, had a certain appeal, and a psychedelic rock band had a definite appeal. And they managed to ride this out. But then slowly but surely, you know, through their experiments of backing a ballet and, and doing two movie soundtracks and playing with orchestras, even filming a, a movie at, at Pompeii, um, somehow they emerged as songwriters by 1973 and are able to create this masterpiece, Dark Side of the Moon
2: yeah I mean again it's, 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 I think it's it's a tribute to the patience of of, of record buyers and, and and concert goers that they were willing to sit through years of this sort of more challenging music um, until you kind of got that you got the payoff with with Dark Side of the Moon. I think they'd made a decision I, you mentioned Pompeii and I think that's a really pivotal moment and the album before Dark Side of the Moon called Medal which I think is one of the best records they, they they ever made. You can feel the pieces are starting to fall into place. The songwriting is better. The, the melodies are stronger. They're still able to do a piece like Echoes, which goes on for the whole side of a record. But they could also do shorter songs, you know, which is much more inviting because... the. Their, their writing their, their writing had become better Gilmore was bedded in with the band he was gelling very well with Richard Wright Roger Waters was starting to write songs and the main thing is what Roger Waters wanted to write songs instead of Astronomy Dominee or whatever it was before I know that's one of Sid Barrett's but instead of that kind of stuff he was writing you know as you say on Dark Side of the Moon he's writing songs about his own feelings inner space was the phrase he used rather than outer space so it's about getting a little bit older worrying that you're in your, your late 20s or when life's going to start oh, it started now what am i going to do am i going mad blah 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 these are generally speaking these are concerns that more people could relate to than possibly atom heart mother so you know that, that there's a directness in the in the songwriting and that's what makes a crucial difference
0: and one character i should have introduced earlier is um steve o'rourke who took over their management from Jenner and king right around the time sid barrel left the band Jenner and king as, as I think it was Jenner said, bet on the rock, wrong horse. They assumed that Sid Barrett, being the songwriter, being the charismatic frontman, that he was the one who would have a lasting musical career. And so they stayed with him yes. and helped him produce two solo albums. But Steve O'Rourke, who'd come in uh, with Brian Morrison's booking agency, he was a whole different kettle of fish than these university boys.
2: Yeah, I mean, he, well, he was, but I think, again, he inherited them. He you know, inherited them from the – he was their agent, the Brian Morrison agency. It was like, well, I'll get you working again. And after uh, see Emily play, and they didn't have another hit after that, they had trouble getting bookings, I think, at one point, early on with Gilmore. So he was their agent. Then he just – he was a hustler. He hustled for them. Um, and he stuck with them. There was ne- apparently never a written contract. It was all done on a handshake. I believe so, anyway. It was, yeah, it was all done on a handshake, like Peter Grant and Led Zeppelin. Um, he was a tough character. He wasn't a thug as such, but he was a, a well or well-spoken thug. Perhaps I don't know. If that's that, that's that's too that's to den- it Sounds like it's denigrating him, and that's not fair. But he was a tough man a tough character and he stuck by them. And again, he believed in what they were doing. He never, he was never interviewed and never discussed what he thought of the music, not to the best of my knowledge. So I don't know. He may have just been like, I've inherited this band. I better make it work. So I'm going to do everything I possibly can for them. I mean, the first thing he did was strike a great deal with EMI where they got some unlimited studio time, he went to bat for them when they wanted to do those album covers, you know, without their names on or photos. On the cover, you needed someone to go in and do this. It wasn't Roger Waters fighting with the, the head of EMI. It would have been Steve O'Rourke. But he was doing Roger Waters' bidding and the band's bidding. And he stayed with them right to right to the very end. Again, an, another manager who had an un, un, unstinting belief in his act and was willing to, you know, go to the ends of the earth for them.
0: So the Steve O'Rourke dynamic brings up something that I wanted to get into is that Steve Rourke is described by, I think it's the hypnosis guys as, you know, he was a very powerful personality and that was great when he was negotiating with the record companies, but it wasn't so great when he worked with the rest of the team and Roger Waters had a similar personality where he was organized and forceful and dynamic and able to get things done. But going way back to the beginnings of his relationship with Rick Wright in particular, He's flagged again and again as a bully and as a very aggressive person. How how did that play out with the internal dynamic of Pink Floyd, especially after they, you know, go all the way to number one on the U.S. album charts and suddenly they're millionaire rock stars?
2: Well, it's always led to tension, basically. Um, but I think Roger Waters was the guy with a lot of drive and a lot of ambition, and he wasn't he wasn't afraid to to be outspoken. Um, he definitely had a tense relationship at various points with Rick Wright. And also with David Gilmore. I remember David David Gilmore told me he walked out of Pink Floyd more than once in that first year of joining because because of Roger, because of Roger Waters' his behavior. I mean, I can't try to remember what Gilmore said once. He just said, look, you know, it, we were all alpha males, I think he said to me once. And, that, you know, he was the biggest alpha male out of all of us. Um, so, yeah, you know, he was a tough demanding character but very tough and demanding of himself as well Roger Waters I think that's it I think he was very hard on himself perhaps as well over the years
0: and ultimately it produced some great work and let's hear a live take of of Damage Eclipse from 1973 On the the is on the and that was Pink Floyd doing one of the key songs on their classic breakthrough album, Dark Side of the Moon. And it shows you a little bit like because of the copyright police, I've got to avoid the, the and also everybody's heard the classic album track. So I'm trying to get a taste with the, the live stuff. But it shows you how they, they were able to – they were not one of these bands that was like the Beatles where they couldn't bring it on stage. They were always able to bring even their most elaborate conceptions to the stage.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing about Dark Side of the Moon is – and to a certain extent, a lot of Wish You Were Here – is that they played a lot of that material almost 12 months before the albums actually came out. I mean, particularly Dark Side of the Moon was developed on stage – so their audience was at that was at that point in there, you know, where they were willing to sit and listen to 20, 30 minutes of new music, um, you know, that they'd never heard before, that hadn't even been recorded, and and the band would work out what worked and what didn't work. And you listen to works in progress concert recordings from sort of late seventy two, you can hear Dark Side of the Moon sort of developing. It's quite interesting to hear songs that aren't quite—they don't sound quite right because they're not what you know from from the album. So yeah, they could always bring it on stage, but I think what's interesting is they used live audience uh, almost as as guinea pigs sometimes for this stuff. It's hard to think of a group doing that in this day and age.
0: Definitely, and, and a lot of their peers struggled, but Pink Floyd's timing was always perfect. Whereas somebody like T Rex was on the wrong sequence, where he's on his American tour playing the last album and it just never clicked but pink floyd you know our, our later band on the post-punk era wire you know would always be playing their new stuff and losing their audience but somehow pink floyd was always able to bring their audience along and it almost seems like their audience was just ready to go anywhere
2: well i think so yeah it's, a, it's an interesting point you know they they, they would were, they were tolerant and then i think they became genuinely quite inquisitive but you do you know what you can't Safer for sure, because if we could jump in a time machine, we could be sitting in the Wembley Empire pool in 1972, sitting there looking at our watches going, Christ, why are they playing this new music? Why don't they play Atomar Mother? You know, what is this dark side of the moon? You you don't know what people really thought at the time. So, uh, you know, there may have been some dissenting voices. I'm sure there were.
0: Well, we know that the critics could be quite hard on them even slagging them for not washing their hair and yes. <laughs> <laughs> relatively petty stuff like that and also this is a period when the rock star is emerging as a phenomenon and these pink floyd as these very remote individuals who after the Sid baird era they didn't have a charismatic front man as such and they sort of hid behind the music and hid behind the multimedia show and so critics like Nick Kent in particular would bash them for being bourgeois and living these pretty sedate lifestyles at home and and treating the gigs as sort of a work date that they had to clock in for.
2: Yeah, there was an element. I mean, there was a great story. There's a letter written to Melody Maker, which was the weekly one of the big weekly music papers here at the time. And someone complained that they'd seen David Gilmore yawning on stage, which I, I always liked that. And and Nick Kent, I spoke to Nick Kent about this, and Nick going, "Oh God, I shouldn't have said that thing about David Gilmore's hair." He did admit because that was a low blow about his hair. And I spoke to Gilmore, and Gilmore, when he can say whatever he wants about my hair, I don't care. But there is an element of this is after that criticism, where they were accused not not about the hair stuff, but where they were accused of being boring on stage. It did make a difference. They did they wouldn't have admitted it at the time, but they did start, particularly Roger Waters. Maybe not the others, but Wards has definitely went, we need to look at what we're doing. We need to think about this. And as you say, though, they hid behind the light show and, and, and the explosions and the flying pigs and so on. It was never about selling an image. I mean, you know, someone said to me, he said, Pink Floyd's idea of stage clothes was putting on a different T-shirt to the one that they'd had on during the rest of the day. That was it. You know, everything else, the jeans and the, and the sneakers stayed the same. And the hair, rem- the hair remained unwashed. <laughs>
0: And they're able to to overcome what's essentially a sophomore slump or didn't have a sophomore slump in that Dark Side it was effectively a first album to at least a huge part of the American audience. It had a hit single, Money, which was sort of a fluke. It was an odd time signature 7-4 song, but there was a funk element to it. So it's danceable and hard rocking. And Roger's lyrics, you know, with, and I remember as a kid, you know, use of the word bullshit, and that song was, you know, really tittered about in schoolyards, and and yeah, and, yes, yeah. yeah. so, something that you know, kids gathered around to listen to. And I remember, you know, that Dark Side of the Moon was the kind of album that your older brother would disappear into his room with his headphones, and maybe sneak a joint up there. And and so there's this enormous almost cult audience because of the devotion of the way they listen to the album. And they have to follow that up and they managed to do it with wish you were here. And you're telling of the recording of that multiple members of the band refer to that album as wish. I wasn't there.
2: Mm, mm. It just didn't, it just wasn't happening. I think they just got a bit sort of, well, you know, I think they froze a little bit. What we've had this huge success. What do, what do we do? What do we do now? You know, where do, where do we go from here? And the pressure was obviously on Roger Waters to come up with another concept and come up with another idea. I think there was a lot of stuff going on in there. They, they all had a load of money now, and that makes a big difference. I mean, they'd been living comfortably before that, but I think during that period directly after Dark Side of the Moon, that sort of two-year period, I think they all went out and bought, you know, nice sports cars and big houses, significantly bigger houses. You know, they were all married or in relationships by that point. Some of them had kids. I think one or two's marriages were starting to go a bit wobbly. All of this stuff was going on around that. So the years of touring together in the back of the van and going to Belgium and playing a rock festival and doing Atom Heart Mother at 3 o'clock in the morning, those days were over. Suddenly you've got a big bag of cash. You're living in a bigger house. Maybe you're not getting on so well with your wife. Maybe you've got kids. It, it, well, who's got time to write an album? You know? I, I, think that had, I think that had a big part, played a big part in Wish You Were Here.
0: But they come through, and, and they they draw on their experience with Sid Barrett to do a really compassionate um, account of Shine On You, Crazy Diamond, and Wish You Were Here. And you can feel that they've got feeling for their friend. It's not like the Stones and Brian Jones where they've got this enmity that never ends with with the guy that helped them start the band, but – that they love Sid in a way and they're still baffled by what happened to him and they're able to express it through some beautiful music.
2: Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think there's a you know, there's a huge amount of guilt within within that band about what happened to Sid Barrett and a lot of thoughts about could we have done things differently? And the answer is when you're 19, 20, 21, you don't know Jack. You know, you really don't. And it's very easy to apply modern-day thinking to stuff that happened nearly 50 years ago. Well, it was over 50 years ago, almost. But I still does, don't think that stopped them feeling guilty. I think particularly in David Gilmore's case as well, because he's the guy who knew Sid Barrett as, as small kids, and he comes in and takes over his job and, and, you know, becomes a hugely successful and very wealthy musician, you know, while his old friend is sort of living... You know, back living in his house in Cambridge, and, and and never going out and seeing anyone. So I think that there is there is a degree of guilt here, but and it's also, and they acknowledge that very well. I think in Wish You Were Here, without being overly obvious about it, it's not too cloying and too obvious. You have to sort of search for the clues. You kind of know what it's about, but it, they don't make it too obvious. And I think that I think I think it's a very dignified way of addressing addressing those feelings.
0: And the other theme on the album is is welcome to the machine and and roger waters struggles with what it's like to be part of a massive record corporation and a big touring apparatus i mean this is around a time i think it was rick wright said that when they played played live he felt like slaves to their equipment that, you know between all the instruments and amps and the lights and so they're they're struggling not to be chewed up by this machine they've created
2: yeah they are well i think some were struggling more than others You know, I mean, these are Roger Waters' lyrics. I'm not entirely sure the others were quite as troubled by it. I think they understood where he was coming from, very much so. But, you know, how how concerned can you be about it when you've just gone and bought yourself a, you know, a fantastic house out in the country and a brand-new Ferrari? You know, it beats being an architect, doesn't it? You know, at that time, these guys are having a, these guys are are, are, are living a good life. But yeah, they, it was Waters' thing of not being, not resting on your laurels, always, you know, trying to to challenge himself as well and challenge everybody around him. Uh, So, you know, I do, I do understand the sentiment, but, but, you know, by the same token, I think those that sentiment was very much Roger Waters rather than perhaps the others but he
0: creates with wish you were here and then with animals i mean he shows that he's continually creatively searching and animals isn't necessarily a success that dark side or wish you were here is but you know it's got this reputation as a difficult album but going back and listening to it it's not like it's captain beefheart or anything There are all the elements of the pink floyd sound are there and, and there's some interesting themes so it's not like it was a dud album
2: Oh, no, not. not at all and i mean the kind of sales they had for animals a band a modern day band would weep if they saw those sales figures and were told that was considered a failure it wasn't a failure at all but like you say it wasn't as immediate as as dark side the moon it's a hard album I, I absolutely love it i think it's one of the best albums i ever made in fact it's one of the albums i go back to i even sometimes listen to pink floyd for pleasure <laughs> Hard to believe, after all this time, but I do, and that is one of the albums I listen to, and I think it's, I think it's great. I really do. I and, think it's a, it's a fabulous record.
0: And they launched the the they were at the peak of their stadium period around this time, they and they've got
2: America, you know, yeah in America over here it was still indoors, but they, they still played with roofs with roofs on. But in America, you guys got to see a much bigger show than than they did. So they over here because they, you know we didn't have the big stadiums here or they weren't, Pink Floyd weren't playing them anyway, not here. Mm.
0: And they were able to bring the giant inflatable pig, which, you know, and and they'd had some spinal tap moments. You describe a pyramid uh, that they had built for the dark side tour that, that ended in disaster. And, and, uh, but Roger Waters gets really frustrated with the stadium experience and, um, Refuses to do stadiums for their next album, and in fact, the whole theme of the wall is about this idea of building a wall between them and their stadium audience.
2: That's right. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I go to someone's go to stadium shows here. I saw Roger Waters in Hyde Park here last summer, and that, throughout the whole thing, I was thinking, God, you know, you've really gone back on your word here because you know, you you are competing with someone queuing up to buy a hamburger and people chatting around talking to themselves and among themselves and you know that but that's the nature of corporate rock i guess now that that's how it is but yeah that was the argument particularly on the animals so i think there was a gig they did in canada where they'd had the olympics recently Are you montreal or, or i think it was montreal and uh correct me if i'm sorry if i've got this wrong no offense to any anybody canadian that's listening but they, they still had the crane in the the crane was still in there left over from the olympics where they'd been needed a crane for something and hadn't taken the crane out and waters all he could see was this crane you, which he didn't feel was particularly conducive to a, in a, a great uh, musical experience so that was a, a huge part of that he vowed not to play stadiums um, he spits in some kid's face who managed to climb up towards the stage he has this sort of existential breakdown and that's the end of it yeah and then he goes off and writes the wall that's right
0: and so let's hear a little bit of uh, Another Brick in the Wall. This is the live take, and you can hear some of the disco elements that made it from the record to their live act.
2: When we grew up and went to school, there was a
0: Bring up that was uh, Pink Floyd doing another brick in the wall live. I want to bring up another character at this point. They, they'd, Norman, Normal Smith, Norman Smith had produced. Normal was what the Beatles called him. Norman Smith had produced their early albums and sort of drifted away and let them take over as their own producers. So by the time of Dark Side of the Moon, it's produced by Pink Floyd. But after Animals, Roger Waters feels like he needs something new. He's completely frustrated with Rick Wright, um, and and he. He brings in this guy, Bob Ezrin, who's a famous producer from America and a very different character. How does that dynamic play out?
2: Well, I think he was brought in as a referee, really, between you know, Waters and Gilmore and so on, and and but also to kind of hone Roger Waters' story. And I think Waters had played him some very early demos for the wall and said, This is the idea of what I want to do with this album. And, and what Ezrin brought in was a kind of a almost like a film producer or a theater producer's discipline he sat down and and wrote out the story of pink the character in the wall the sort of disenfranchised rock star and it was ezrin who sat down and went right this is the story it starts here we do this we do this obviously we watered his involvement but he turned it into a linear narrative printed it out as a book and then sat down with the four of them and said look this is roger's story this is what we want to do so i think he helped focus the original story and i think he played a huge part in that. and um yeah and he was then heavily involved in 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 getting this thing recorded and getting it getting it in finished and into the shops and and mediating between gilmore and and waters and waters and the others when when they fell out to to with varying degrees of success I have to say but you know that is what he was hired to do I interviewed Bob Ezrin for this book and he Ezrin said he he nearly went mad he said it was just terrible at times he said fantastic work amazing music he said but there were moments during that recording process particularly working with Roger Waters where he said I just felt I felt like I was losing my mind
0: yeah he's got some you you capture some pretty evocative quotes from Ezrin where he's describing the experience of, you know, he's sort of a New York street kid and very direct and confrontational. And he describes Roger Waters as very English public school boy, sort of passive aggressive and relentless. And there's this undercurrent uh, of, you know, c- undercutting him and insulting him and, you know, even wore t-shirts mocking yeah. the fact that Ezrin wasn't going to get points. But one thing Ezra did was he creates this hit single, Another Brick in the Wall, almost from whole cloth. I mean, Roger Waters has the melody and the lyrics, but Ezrin brings in the, the kids' chorus and the disco beat and turns it from an album track to this monster hit single.
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, he had a, played a huge, huge part in that. His idea, like you say, his idea to put kids on records, he'd done that before with Alice Cooper and... Um, Someone else, I think. Yeah, Kiss, I think there's some kids on a, one of the Kiss albums. He'd done that before, but, you know, he persuaded them to to put a dance beat underneath the song, which I'm, I'm sure they were like, what the earth are you talking about? You know, and I think the first verse he's looped, I think he looped it I think, a couple of times just to to get a song out, to get a single out of it. He encouraged them to to to, to do a hit single. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic piece of work. But, you know, they were very... uh I'm sure they were slightly questioning, or some of them would be questioning of it at the time, but it became a massive hit here in the UK. I mean, that suddenly Pink Floyd are on the map again, where pop, where kids are concerned as well, the younger audience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember as a kid, roller skating was a famous fad in the United States, and disco music, you know, village people and, and chic would be playing in, in these roller rinks and at discos for adults, and Another Brick on the Wall was right <laughs> in there, you yeah. know, with ymca and another one bites the dust and
2: absolutely yeah (laughs) well here uh, one of the great things was every every kid i was at school when it came out every kid at school claimed oh my cousin my my second cousin he sings on another brick in the wall every kid you knew knew someone who claimed they knew one of the kids that sang on another brick in the wall
0: and the uh role the kids becomes a big media controversy in the UK. Yeah,
2: they didn't get any money. <laughs> their school. I interviewed their teacher. It was a, a school over the road from Pink Floyd studio. And the engineer goes in, gets in touch with their sort of their hip music teacher, and says, "We want to have some kids on the record." And he took them out of class, over the road to into the studio, and and, and and did the singing. I mean, you'd never be allowed to do that now. And he got into a he got into a heap of trouble with the with the authorities at the school for that. And then the kids got cut up about it a few years later when they all thought, well, perhaps we should have had some money for singing on this multi-platinum album. (laughs) (laughs) And that's funny enough. It didn't work out. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's another, but uh, I mean, uh, they, they, they pull it off and get away with it, but that theme of not crediting people. I mean, that goes back uh, to Ron Gessen, who did the orchestration on Adam Hart mother, who described his experience as, the little piece of meat ground up in the great minting machine uh, and you know, the woman who yeah. sang the melody on great gig in the sky. Sorry,
2: um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the, yeah. I mean, she was very cut up about that. She did get money. She got money, but she's never allowed to say how much she got. That's part of the terms of the deal. And she has a, a, a writer's credit on it, on it now. I mean, this is this is a whole other world. It's the world of sessions. What does a se- what what qualifies as a as a piece of session work, and what qualifies as as composition? I think there's so many so many grey areas in this. I, I'm not sure Pink Floyd were significantly any worse than anyone else, but but, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a, there's a there's a valid argument I think for some of this.
0: And then the final chapter in the story of Pink Floyd is Roger Waters. Essentially, you know, they do another album after the wall, the final cut that. But- waters completely dominates and
2: no no one likes yeah
0: (laughs) yeah and it's not as bad i'll listen to that again preparing the show it's not as bad as i remember but the early 80s suddenly bands like queen uh and pink floyd you know who who were in all the way through the 70s right out the disco period but i they might have even been victims of the disco backlash because there's a period in the early 80s where pink floyd was just as uncool as it could possibly get
2: yeah, they were here as well. Queen was different because Queen was still big and still having hits over here. Um, but but for Floyd, yeah, I mean, you know, they sort of they stopped. I mean, they weren't active. They weren't they didn't tour after the wall. They didn't really tour the wall properly. They only did a few shows in London here. So, you know, they stopped being visible. You know, that that I think that was a big part of it. Yeah.
0: And and Waters felt that he could sort of just shut down the band. And he made the mistake of trying to fire the manager and the band at the same time and ultimately david gilmore and steve o'rourke seize control of the band and go on to massive commercial success
2: yes they do yeah i mean and i think this is one of the first examples this would have been around 1986 87 this is one of the first examples where you started to see that the strength of a brand a brand name and that the name pink floyd was bigger than the than the people that were in it because Gilmore and Waters had both made solo records before that and, and not had any great commercial success. I mean, Gilmore, I am seeing Gilmore playing to a half-empty theatre doing a solo thing around about 83, 84, something like that. So they realised, I think David Gilmore realised he'd, he'd spent 10 years, we the best part of 10, 10 years, over 10 years by that point, would not it? You know, involved in Pink Floyd and he wasn't going to give up that name so easily. He realized that the name was bigger than his, than his. And, and, you know, Roger Waters learned that the hard way because Floyd come back out and they're able to play stadiums. Whereas Waters is touring as a solo artist and he's sometimes struggling to fill theaters. So it was, it was a rude awakening. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and they go on, I mean, massive success with with the momentary lapse of reason and and the tours they do i think two epic world tours with the gilmore band and i think you know you could make the argument that the brand over the individual was a a factor in the sid barrett era you know pink floyd the band staying big with sid barrett but sid fell apart he wasn't he was barely able to record albums with help then wasn't able to perform live other than one or two gigs But Roger Waters, I assume, thought, you know, I'm on top of it, I'm competent, I've got another concept album in the can, I'm going to be out there working it, but nothing clicked.
2: No, no, it doesn't. And I think, again, it proves that there is this peculiar chemistry within bands, whether it's, you know, Seth Daltry and Townsend or Jimmy Page and Robert Plant or David Gilmore and Roger Waters, They, they do their best work when they are together, however excruciating and painful that process might be. You know, I think it, nothing illustrates that better than perhaps than the contrast between Roger Waters, his solo albums and the work he did with Pink Floyd, because yeah. I think he misses David Gilmour. And at the other end of the spectrum, I sometimes think David Gilmour misses the big ideas and the rawness and the concept and the antagonism that perhaps Roger Waters can bring to the table.
0: But they did get back together for one last show.
2: Yes, they did. Yeah. Yeah. Which was terrible, which was excruciating. Apparently the process, of <laughs> the process of the rehearsals, I was quite shocked to find out how, how difficult some of the rehearsals were when I was, when I was interviewing people for this book, because I thought it, I thought that 20 minutes on stage for live eight was, was fantastic. I thought they did it. I thought it was an amazing performance, but uh, by all accounts, it was a, a difficult process getting there.
0: Yeah, and they never repeated it. And then Rick Wright passed away shortly after that. Or, uh, shortly after you put put out the book,
2: he did. I mean, the book in the UK, the book's been updated twice. I mean, the book the book has a different title. It's called Pigs Might Fly here in the UK, so that's that's been updated. But I was told that Americans wouldn't know what that meant. They had to be called Comfortably Numb. So <laughs> no, genuinely, <laughs> genuinely, that's why I was told. So I was like, oh god. But even now, like twelve, thirteen years later, I still get asked, is it the same book? So uh, it, it is, but I get I get more money for the UK version.
0: <laughs> ah, well, I'll have to log on to Amazon and get the. This is the second time
2: I've yeah, discovered Amazon. this. UK <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 much, I, much, I, I
0: yeah, <laughs> discovered this on air with Paul Trinker as well. That his David Bowie book had been updated in the UK. Oh, no, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, I'm sure he'll want you to buy the most late the latest version. We're both yeah. money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what? Well, with both hands yeah (laughs) so
0: thanks so much for coming on the show Mark this is Mark Blake author of Comfortably Numb The Inside Story of Pink Floyd or as it's known in the UK (laughs) what was the title again?
2: Pigs Might Fly
0: Pigs Might Fly so I as an American I'm not confused by that but I can see where they would want to go
2: with the publishers but thank you thank you that's great
0: (laughs) so thanks for coming Mark hope to have you on again
2: thank you bye bye
1: sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at LetItRollcast. Come back Thursdays for our new show focusing on Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus, and next Monday when author Adam White will join Nate to discuss his book, Motown, The Sound of Young America. Numb, the inside story of Pete Floyd is published by DeCapo Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, let it roll